0: Good morning. Good morning and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a policy analyst with the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. I want to welcome you all to Cato at this early hour. Uh, We start unconventionally early because uh, we have the South African president presumptive in town, uh, Jacob Zuma, uh, and uh, we didn't want to clash with uh, his event and then give you the impossible choice of going to see him or coming coming over here. The topic of today's discussion is the state of freedom in Africa. But uh, what is freedom? Most of you will be familiar with uh, the concept of economic freedom, which uh, the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity promotes in part with this uh, wonderful product, which is Economic Freedom of the World Report, which we publish annually. But of course, there are other types of freedom, and it is on those types of freedom that we are going to focus today. Freedom House defines freedom as political rights that enable people to participate freely in the political process, including the right to vote freely for, uh, for distinct alternatives in legitimate elections, compete for public office, join political parties and organizations, and elect representatives who have a decisive impact on public policies, and are accountable to the electorate. Crucially, Freedom House continues, civil liberties allow for freedoms of expression and belief, associational and organizational rights, rule of law, and personal autonomy without interference from the state. This, it turns out, is a very important addition to political freedom. As Milton Friedman once pointed out, I've grown increasingly to think that we need to make three classifications instead of two, economic freedom, social or civil freedom, and political freedom. Hong Kong is the key example of the importance of that distinction. Hong Kong has or had little political freedom when it was under British control, when it was essentially a benevolent dictatorship. It was run by officials in the British Foreign Service, and yet Hong Kong had a very high degree of civil freedom, (coughs) freedom of speech, freedom of association, as well as economic freedom. Milton continues, You can have a high degree of social freedom and a high degree of economic freedom without any political freedom. What's not clear is whether you can have any political freedom if you don't have any other freedoms. I think those are very pertinent words for Africa today. Data shows that Africa has more political freedom than ever before. Elections are held with greater frequency. Even Zimbabwe insists on having elections every five years. But are Africans freer today than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Or should, or, or should we think of political freedom in Africa? elections, and political parties, just as empty shells devoid of substance. Substance which in America and elsewhere in the world is provided by civil society, independent media, the rule of law, and vibrant private sector. To help us understand these topics, I'm privileged to introduce two men whom I admire greatly for their personal courage, perhaps heroism, in standing up for freedom in Africa. Our first speaker today is Tony Leon, who is a visiting fellow at uh, Cato's Institute for Central Global Liberty and Prosperity. While at the centre, where he will be through December, he is researching the state of liberal democracy on the African continent. For nearly twenty years, Tony Leon has been a Member of Parliament in South Africa and for thirteen years, He's led the Democratic Alliance and its predecessor. He was, until he stepped down as the leader of the opposition uh, last year, the longest-serving leader of the opposition since the advent of democracy in South Africa in 1994. He led and grew his party from its marginal position on the brink of political extinction into the second largest political force in South Africa. Nelson Mandela, South Africa's former president, called Leon, a leader whose dynamism and capacity for analysis keeps everyone on their toes. A trained lawyer, Leon actively participated in the critical constitutional negotiations which led to the birth of democratic South Africa and served as a co-chairperson of the Constitutional Assembly's Committee on Fundamental Rights. He has been at the forefront of national and international events, both as front-ranking parliamentarian and writer, as well as Vice President of the Liberal International. He's been published widely and has two books uh, published, his most recent one being, on the contrary, Leading the Opposition in Democratic South Africa. Tony Leon was uh, born and educated in KwaZulu-Natal, graduated uh, with Bachelors of Arts, degree from the University of Edwatersrand, and then LLB. his home is in Cape Town, and uh, we are delighted that he's taken some time off from what is possibly the most beautiful city in the world to come and join us in D.C. Please help me welcome Tony León.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Marion, for that uh, warm introduction. And may I also take the opportunity of uh, thanking both you and Ian Vasquez, the Director of the Center for Liberty and Global Prosperity here at Cato for affording me an opportunity of not just taking time out from frontline politics, but uh, at least having a chance to think and reflect, which um, often in frontline politics you have very little opportunity to do. Someone once said that the distinction between a political scientist and a politician is as between a criminologist and a criminal, and I suspect there's uh, some validity in that. Uh, I also uh, cannot help but uh, think what an honor it is for me to be on the same platform as Andrew Mwenda, who has uh, in the East African corner of our continent done something that not enough people do in our part of the world, and that is speak truth to power, and he will bear eloquent testimony to that in a short while. Now, as Marion mentioned, and perhaps this is very germane to the discussion today, uh, I served as leader of the opposition, which is a parliamentary term. We do have vestiges of Westminster in South Africa and elsewhere in the continent in the South African parliament uh, after the advent of democracy in our country. And um, I had an opportunity a few years ago when I was in London to meet with the leader of the opposition in the House of Commons, who at that stage they've had many since the Labour Party accession. There was William Haig, and William said to me, and I can't do a Yorkshire accent because he has a very thick one, he said to me, tell me, what's it like to be leader of the opposition in South Africa? So I said, well, William, compared to your job, it's pretty lousy. Compared to Morgan's Fangerei in Zimbabwe, it's fantastic. That's what it's like. (laughs) And I think with that measurement, you get some idea of uh, what it's like. And this brings me really to a point that uh, no less a personage than President Bill Clinton said when he came to Parliament in South Africa in 1997. And he gathered uh, at his request the opposition leadership around a table in the parliamentary dining room. And one of my colleagues of the more right-wing persuasion was bending Clinton's ear about the travails of life under the ANC, and he had this whole laundry list of complaints. It was only two years or three years into uh, ANC rule. I can't imagine how long the list would be today, but that's uh, for conjecture. And Clinton listened in that very attentive way that he hasn't. He said, you know what? He said, I think South Africa's fantastic. So my colleague was a bit nonplussed by this response, and he turned around to President Clinton and said, well, what do you mean it's Fantastic. And Clinton said something which I think is very true. He said, well, the only question in politics and in life is compared to what? And compared to apartheid, this is pretty fantastic. And if you actually take the Bill Clinton measurement of compared to what, and uh, Marion mentioned this in his introduction, some of the metrics in Africa today on the rankings of democracy and freedom, and we have certainly Freedom House to thank for their quantification of it, the, the impressive range has increased. Freedom House, in its latest review of Freedom in Africa, ranked 11 countries as free. And a very disparate group all over the continent, from the Cape Verde through Senegal, Mali, Ghana, Benin, Namibia, Botswana, South Africa, Mauritius, Lesotho, Sao Tome, Principe, which is a little island off the Gulf of Guinea. Um, now, of course, the definition of what is free consists of a broad scope for open political competition, a climate and respect for human rights and civil liberties, independent civic life and a free media. Now, that group constitutes 23% of the African total. Now, on the compared to what basis, that is a big improvement from when this measurement first started more than 30 years ago, when only 7% of African states were categorized as free. Now, the bulk of African states on the same measurement are partly free, who comprise 46% of the total states in Africa, which in itself although partly free is much worse than free, it's better than not free, which is where the residue reside, is certainly an improvement on the 36% so categorized in 1977. Now, Immediately, And I I'm don't have the time, and you certainly probably don't have the patience, to argue that certain states which are on the free category should more accurately be categorized as partly free. I can't think of any, unfortunately, in the partly free category who should be uprated to free. But certainly those would have the vestiges of democratic discourse and democratic contestation, but like, to use a Milton Friedman expression – they would be a bit like the weasel's egg. The substance would have been gutted out of it. And um, the biggest and most welcome shift, in fact, is that for the 800 million people who live in sub-Saharan Africa, the uprating of countries which used to be not free at all, which is a complete denial of civil liberties, democratic contestation, and the normal uh, rights and freedoms that we associate with a liberal democracy – has dropped to 31%, whereas it used to be at 57%. Now, that's as far as the broad categorization goes. And in many respects, the situation in Africa is unrecognizable from what it was. Whereas in the bad old days of old Africa, you had a country or a continent which was characterized largely by dictatorships, of one kind, political strife of another kind, and coup d'etats were the usual method through which government or regime change happened. Presidents for life were more common than they were the exceptions, and indeed elections, if they were held at all, were simply convened in order to validate a country leader's rule. So what you've had really in Africa after the first wave, or Uhuru wave of freedom in the early 1960s, is a so-called second liberation after 1989, and that date being of some significance because it also had to do with the ending of the Cold War, and uh, which I'm pleased to say was won by the West. But I have to say that that contestation on both sides propped up many, many regimes who sell by date in terms of any vestigial Respect for democracy had long expired. Now, the other interesting feature of this is that many democracies in Africa, properly so called, have persisted for more than a decade since then. And some of them, and this to me is interesting, such as Mali, one of the poorest countries in the world, countries in the world, have actually, notwithstanding their very low ranking on the Human Development Index, have managed to push ahead with democratization. Another positive feature is that the one-party state norm has ended. Indeed, and this is to me one of the most extraordinary metrics of the whole lot in the preliminary research I've done, only one African president was defeated at the polls between 1960 and 1990. One. Now, if I told you where that president came from, it might also be a very bad advertisement for democracy and freedom. He came from the country of Somalia. It's the country, actually, which proved democratic contestation in the bad old days. Today is actually the most failed state in the world by certain metrics. But please don't read anything into that because uh, that is not the exception, I hope, that proves the rule. Now, electoral contestation, even of the rigged sort, has led generally to an improvement of civil liberties and civil consciousness. It has strengthened civic organizations. It has, to some extent, freed the mass media. So that, to me, is very important. Now, as uh, my colleague here, Ian Vasquez has pointed out, and I'm sure I can repeat in public, if you look through the World Bank literature, you do not find the word democracy appearing at all because certain of the client states are anything but democratic. But what is interesting is if you look at some of the other literature and some of the experiences of Africa, there's a huge contestation of what constitutes a democracy. Is it the liberal democratic sort to which I think many of us aspire, or is it some kind of empty-shell democracy, a so-called superficial democracy, a hybrid democracy, an at-risk democracy? But what to me is very interesting isn't so much the categorization or the classification, but something actually which says, how do regimes change? And as I said, bad old days, the early 60s through to the 80s, many, if not most, regime changes in Africa happened through violent means, assassination, through to coup d'etat. What is interesting in some of the recent studies is how the rule of violent eruption has given way to a rule-bound change. And many African leaders today have left office, not because they chose to do so, but because of rule-bound change forced by term limits. And what's very interesting is that there are some interesting cases where something like 33 African constitutions today term limit the presidency, which is and of itself a very useful device to ensure some kind of sunset setting on one-man rule, because big-man rule in Africa has tended to be a defining feature. And indeed, we have in a recent study 18 cases where the regime has changed because of rule or term limits. Now, in nine cases the presidents managed to either extend their term of office or to change the constitution, but none did it by bypassing the constitution. And some of the more egregious examples, most recently the case of President Abasanjo in Nigeria, were rebuffed constitutionally in their own parliaments from extending their presidential lives beyond the two-term limit. Now, having mentioned some of these impressive features... I think it's worth recording, in the words of an Africa specialist, Jeffrey Herbst, that something in Africa which is being attempted has never been tried in any other region of the world. And that is, never before have so many countries, more or less simultaneously, with such a poor resource base and with such weak institutions attempted to democratize at once. And that, of course, has led to very, very uneven results. Now, Marion mentioned in his introduction something about even the worst of us, the tyrants among us, and we have too many to mention perhaps, including Robert Mugabe being the most egregious neighborhood example that we have in southern Africa, do not actually contest the ideology of democracy. used to be, if you go back to Africa in the 60s and 70s, that the one-party state – was the preferred norm, encouraged incidentally by a certain amount of what you might call development-itis, as I choose to call it. Those who said, well, actually, Africa first needed economic development which could only happen in an application of authoritarian rule. There actually is no African state, even the not free, who would advance that argument today. But So while democracy holds the ring, theoretically at least, there are certain limitations to its real application in Africa and Southern Africa. The first of them is this, that actually if you look at the free countries classified by Freedom House, with the standout exception of South Africa, every single one of them is a relatively small country. That's the first point. So in other words, the larger the country, the less likely full-blown liberal democracy or even some variant of it, is likely to take root in Africa at least. Indeed, six of the 11 countries on the list could be categorized as very small, consisting of fewer than 2 million people. And indeed, the three biggest countries in Africa, those that consist of something like 36 percent, of the total population of sub-Saharan Africa are either not free at all, according to this categorization, the Democratic Republic of Congo, or at best partly free, namely Nigeria and Ethiopia. A second feature, which goes to the issue of economic growth, is that most of the more impressive levels of economic growth in Africa, and there's been an average growth rate of 5% per annum up until the latest uh, disaster in the financial markets, has actually happened in eight oil-producing countries in the sub-Saharan area. And once again, you come to the conclusion, if you look at the list, that with the exception of Botswana and South Africa, which produce uh, hard mineral exports, not a single oil-producing country in Africa has actually managed to democratize. And you can ask yourself why. Well, there's certain obvious conclusions. One is that the relatively large oil flows have helped support governments which would otherwise have collapsed and made it hard for the rulers to step out of the shoes of power. Indeed, the only small country in Africa which is classified as not free at all, Equatorial Guinea, is the one that produces oil oil. But there is a shaft of light, perhaps due to uh, good governance coming reluctantly to some and also, I understand, due to the pressures from the Scandinavian government, particularly Norway, and that is the emergence of something called the Extractive Industries Transparency Index, which is an idea which is starting to take root among 20 countries in Africa who have voluntarily signed up that um, signatory countries openly account for their dealings in resources. Now, one of the most mineral-rich countries in Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo, absurdly claimed, as you'll see in the latest edition of The Economist, that last year it only received $86,000 in total in terms of its royalties from mineral extraction. Now, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to go and work out the fallaciousness of those figures. Now, why is it that although there's been an impressive uprate in democracy, we don't actually have the full-blown, as we would call it, bells and whistle democratization taking place? And why do we have so many pseudo-democracies instead of full-blown democracies in Africa? And one of the reasons for that is the persistence of something which the scholars refer to as neo-patrimonialism, but which we can decode to mean simply the continuation of the imperial presidency. And what's too often happened, as we've gone through, in my part of the world, the first flush of constitution writing, rule-changing, democratization, has been while we've made contestation of power a more even or level playing field, with some notable exceptions, What we haven't done is to actually reform the institutions of power themselves. And this point um, was well made by an African scholar called Mr. Kwasi, Professor Kwasi Premper, who said that while at the end of 2005, 33 African countries had set presidential term limits in their constitution, but African presidents who have been term limited by all accounts, have not been tamed. Fortunately, an African said that, no one else. Otherwise, there might be some cultural inferences which could be drawn from that. But what he's really saying is you can reform some of the modalities of power, but until you start accounting for the informal but hugely influential presidential decision-making that fuels corruption, encourages nepotism, and provides forward cover for ruinous economic decision-making, questions about the depth of recent democratization and constitutional reforms are entirely in order. And therefore, what we find is that reforms are too often superficial. I could give you a lecture, and I won't do that because I'm looking at a broader uh, compass or broader canvas here, on what's happened in South Africa, which made a hugely impressive transition from apartheid minority rule to full-blown, multi-party, multi-racial democracy with some institutional and constitutional reforms. But I could also tell you, with some, I believe, feeling and a lot of accuracy, that actually the transference from white nationalism to black nationalism has not led to the flowering of full-blown democracy. I always like to tell audiences in South Africa, and I can repeat it here today, that when we indeed embarked on our brave constitutional journey in 1993 and 1994, we thought we'd created or planted a great oak tree. In many ways, the stunted growth of our democracy resembles more a bonsai tree. And you see this in the neighborhood. If you go into East Africa, I won't presume to talk about Uganda, but one of Uganda's neighbors, Tanzania, in 1985... Tanzania, abandoned through the ultimate voluntary retirement of its president, a long-serving champion of one-party socialist economics, Julius Nereri, it made a democratic transformation. But actually since 1985, which is now a long period of time, longer than I've been in active politics, more than 20 years, since 1985, the same party rules Tanzania today, And having made a few concessions both to economic reality and democratic discourse has largely been left untouched in the pursuit of its powers. And I can speak with some feeling on this because I've been there and I have uh, entertained and been entertained by the CUF opposition and I can just tell you what a battle they have even in the areas that they would normally control. Now often what happens is that when there's a desire for change – or when there's a constitution-writing process, the opposition who are motivating for this are very often overwhelmingly motivated by the near-term goal of forming the government themselves rather than comprehensively reforming government itself. very, very important distinction. In other words, to put it another way, when yesterday's electoral insurgents become today or tomorrow's office holders or have that aspiration, you usually get a very different and somewhat retarding set of outcomes than, in fact, if the exercise is to curtail the power and the reach of the state or the president rather than to simply take it over yourself. Now, there is also a continuing belief in what you might call the preponderance of executive power, that somehow when you are sitting entirely understandably as a voter or as a constitution writer with the huge problems of underdevelopment and economic marginalization, your first thought is actually, well, what we really need is a strong man, albeit an elected one, to actually lead us into some kind of economic golden age. And this largely is reflected in a lot of the constitutional instruments that are refashioned in the reformation process. For example, in South Africa, to give you one instance, it would have been thought that having taken over a highly centralized and deeply authoritarian state, that the next or the first democratic wave would lead to the balancing of central power with powers being dispersed into the nine provinces. In fact, the constitution we designed gives very limited power to the nine provinces to act as counterweights against central or federal power, as you call it in Washington, and provides very, very limited zones of autonomy in those particular regions. So what you have, for example, is no independent revenue-raising basis in any of the nine provinces. And I speak again with some feeling because the party I led controlled at one stage one of those nine provinces, but we couldn't raise – a single cent of revenue. We were dependent on a, the national government and on a revenue-sharing f- formula. And when we took over, two years ago, one of the, the second biggest cities in South Africa, Cape Town, which was won and captured, I'm pleased to say, by the opposition, we discovered that we couldn't fire a single municipal worker of the 26,000 that we had now in our employ, and we couldn't negotiate competitive wage rates for any of our employees because all these matters were centrally determined in one national bargaining council, which was um, set up for the purpose of making sure that even if political control was lost at a sub-national level, control would be retained by the central authorities in other ways. And there are many, many examples of how legislatures in Africa, some very noteworthy exceptions, have simply acquiesced or being very, very leery about taking power away from the national head of state. Now, there are some very significant exceptions to that, but I think the general rule uh, continues. The other problem that you have in many of the poorer countries in Africa, and that is most of the continent, is that there is a disconnect between the voter and revenue raisings. I mentioned oil being the great curse in terms of democratization. You can take this point further. Since many states get their revenue or the bulk of their revenue from external rents, either in the form of uh, resources-based extractive industries or indeed from foreign donors, there is a very, very minimal what the scholars call fiscal social contract between government and the citizenry. In other words, if the state does not depend... On the majority of its voters for its revenue base, why, in fact, should the state or the government or the president be at all sensitive to taxpayers' demands? Not a, not a problem that American politicians or institutions suffer from, but certainly one in Africa. In my own country, for example, the tax base is extremely narrow. It consists of fewer than 5 million people who pay the bulk of the income tax in the country and direct taxes – of a population of 46 million people. And since many of those taxpayers vote for the opposition, the government can basically ignore them and still return to power with a very, very hefty majority. Judiciaries. Now, when all else fails, we put our faith in the judiciary. If the constitutional checks and balances in the legislative in legislature are weak, if we find that the citizens can't impact on government then we turn to the judiciary. And on the judicial activist front, there have been some advances, but many retreats as well. Now, where does this long laundry list leave us? I would say only this, and that is that the picture is varied. The picture is a little obscured by some of these factors which I've tried to project, that you have constitutions, but not constitutionalism in many, if not most, countries. That you have a welcome advance of the rule of law, but you still have a very, very strong presidentialism, which suggests that the rule of man, particularly in the informal networks of power which so predominate, can overwhelm the rule of law. And I think the uh, point was very well made when uh, Larry Diamond, who's a scholar on Africa, calculated that something like $600 billion has flowed to Africa in aid flows, but today many Africans, if not most Africans, are poorer or worse off than they were at the advent of independence. Six Marshall plans have come into Africa, but the results have been very, very disappointing. This suggests, in fact, that simply throwing money at the problem is not the solution. But the real and transcending and less politically sexy solution is to improve governance, is to make sure that the at-risk democracies become more enduring democracies through the careful and patient application of institution building. And... I'm always uh, struck by the fact that my former president, who recently himself was democratically deposed, not through, a, through an internal but constitutional coup d'etat, not of the military sort, was very much given to quoting Amical Cabral, who was not himself a great democrat, but uh, was uh, well known for his activities in what were the Portuguese colonial empire, now of blessed memory, who always warned against claiming easy victories, tell no lies, claim no easy victories. So I said if we were to apply the Cabral imprint on Africa today, we should paint a realistic portrait of a continent in all its variegated forms with different patterns of development and different levels of democratization, attempting to democratize with varying levels of success, which faces probably today more challenges than triumphs, but it is pointing in the right direction. And you will see that if you look at last week's Economist, which a few years ago called Africa the hopeless continent. It strikes a more hopeful note, but a realistic one, which I think is worth pursuing. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you Tony for a wonderful contribution. Our next next speaker is uh, Andrew Mwenda. Andrew is the founding managing editor of The Independent, Uganda's premier current affairs news magazine. He's been a John Knight fellow at Stanford University until July 2007. Before then, he worked as political editor of Daily Monitor newspaper in Uganda and hosted the most popular radio talk show in Uganda. Mwenda did a Master of Science in Development Studies uh, degree uh, from the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. And he's also obtained a Bachelor's degree in Journalism at uh, Makerere University. He has taught at Makerere University as a lecturer in Development Studies, been a visiting fellow at the Africa Studies Centre at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, and a guest lecturer at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Mwenda has worked as a consultant for the World Bank, the World Resource Institute, and Transparency International. He has written for international news media like Der Spiegel and the International Herald Tribune. He's done documentaries for BBC and has regularly featured in interviews on CNN, BBC, Channel 4, SABC, Africa, Sky News, and so on. He's also written for the New York Times, Financial Times, The Times of London, The Economist, and The Washington Post. Mwenda has also authored and co authored articles in international uh, academic journals such as African Affairs, journal, Journal of Modern African Studies, and Review of African Political Economy. He has finished co authoring a book on elite politics and corruption in Uganda, which I believe, along with many other of his activities, got him into a great deal of trouble with uh, the the current president and the governing elite in that country. In 2008, the World Economic Forum nominated Mr. Mwenda as a young global leader. Uh, The Africa Leadership Institute in London also nominated him as the Archbishop Desmond Tutu Fellow. He's won many awards uh, for both print and broadcasting work in Uganda and abroad, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the Cato Institute today.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Marian for inviting me to the Cairo Institute again. This is my second time to stand at this podium. And I also want to thank Leon for the very nice presentation about democracy in Africa. And I'm wondering, after his excellent presentation, what it is that I have to say. Africa right now is going through incredible change, incredible social, political and economic change. After the mess of the 1960s and 70s, especially the pursuit of wrong-headed economic policies, most African economies initially stagnated and then entered negative growth. The consequence of negative growth was that our governments ran out of fiscal resources to prop themselves up. Please remember that a government without fiscal revenues Sufficient fiscal revenues is also a government in political danger. Unpaid armies tend to mutiny or lead military coups. Unpaid unpaid policemen may join demonstrators on the streets. When governments cannot bribe their political hunger zone, they tend to exit the ruling party and join the ranks of the opposition. When governments cannot deliver best services like best healthcare, education, good roads, the population tends to get discontented. And with so many leading politicians joining the opposition, that spells political disaster for incumbents. So I want to begin by saying that revenue is a very, very important aspect of the survival of governments. However, in the 1960s and 70s and early 80s, most of our governments could afford to mismanage the domestic economy and get away with it because they were getting an external subsidy in form of aid from the Cold War. Thus, when the Cold War ended, many governments in Africa either democratized or lost power at the hands of rebels. Most people think that it is the end of the Cold War that sparked off rebellion in Africa. These rebellions had been simmering in Sierra Leone, in Liberia, in Somalia, in the DR Congo. What the end of the Cold War did, it initially created a shock from the international aid community. These governments were not receiving money. When the governments are fiscally weak, the balance of power between the state and those who want to contest power from it, either peacefully or by force, enters an equilibrium. And I think that is why and many governments found themselves in political danger. But I think Africa has learned from the mistakes of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. If you come to Africa today, most governments have privatized public enterprises. Many of them have liberalized many sectors of the economy, telecommunications, banking, crop marketing. Many governments have deregulated prices. Hardly do you find a government in Africa, even with the exception of Mogabe, trying to control prices. So, the shift from a state controlled economy to a relatively free market driven economy has already taken place in Africa. Of course, such a process, rather, such reform is not an event, but a process. The evidence or the results of that process of the shift from a state controlled economy to a private market driven economy, private enterprise market driven economy, has been to unleash social forces that are right now contesting and every day expanding democratic democratic reform in Africa. Of course, democratization itself is a process, not an event. But there are key milestones that uh, Leon has touched on. We have moved away from violent change of government towards constitutional change of government. There are significant challenges in that field, but a lot of progress is being made. If you come to my own country, Uganda, there was a time when we had only one radio station owned by the government, one television station owned by the government, and all newspapers run by the state. Today, we have 198 private radio, private FM radio stations. The quantity of debate in Uganda is so high, Uganda resembles the United States, although the quality is impressingly poor. But there are still concerns. I will begin by my personal experience. Earlier this year, I think in April or May, I can't remember I was kidnapped by the government because my newspaper had done interviews with a number of people who had been tortured in illegal detention centers. We interviewed 17 of them, and our plan was to serialize the experiences in illegal detention by paramilitary non-legal state institutions the government was scared that I was going to expose this debt and they moved very fast and kidnapped me, confiscated all our computers, our documents, our CDs, our audio tapes, every single thing under the surface of the sun that was electronic was confiscated in the naive hope that they will take away the materials we had. Unfortunately for us, rather fortunately for us and unfortunately for the government, a young academic journalist who was working with me had left for Canada and they said, look, when you're going to Canada, Wendy, carry all these Uh, interviews you have done, transcribe them from Canada and you can send them to us by email. So all the material we wanted to publish was out of the country. And they were looking for her. um, They were looking also to deport her from Uganda. So we already had the interviews. So in spite of our arrest, the confiscation of our uh, computers and other materials, and in spite of all the attempted intimidation, they brought tanks and bulldozers around my office and I told them, armed with their tanks, I armed with my tongue, I was likely to defeat the government. And uh, we finally serialized these interviews. But what does this experience tell us about what is happening in Africa today? Every attempt by Africans to expand democratic freedom, to expand the frontiers of democracy, threatens the status quo, and the status quo puts up a fight. For example, in Uganda, previously, you could not even criticize a minister in a newspaper. Journalists started writing critical articles of ministers and their corrupt ways. The government responded by arresting journalists. But they continued to publish this information in spite of going to jail. And over time, the government accepted that it is legitimate for journalists to arrest, rather to criticize ministers. Then the battle shifted to the presidency. The president couldn't be criticized. Newspapers and radio stations started criticizing him, arrested many editors and reporters, After some time, because they did not retreat from what they were doing, the government has accepted, the government in Uganda has accepted that the legitimate criticism is tolerable. Then the government created a new frontier because every day we try to expand our democratic, uh, the frontiers of democracy, our space for free expression. The government put a front line. You cannot criticize the military, especially, given that the country was facing a rebellion in the northern region. We said no. There were ghost soldiers on the army register. Ghost soldiers are soldiers who exist on paper but not in fact. And the taxpayer was paying salaries for non existent Ghost soldiers. Forty million dollars a year was going into were salaries of these non existent soldiers. The army was buying expired food rations, undersized uniforms, junk military equipment. We said we will publish this. And I, I personally did a number of investigative reports on corruption in the military. We were arrested. We went to jail. We came out. We reported new scandals. They took us back to jail. Finally, we won that battle. Now, the fifth frontier was the criticism of the president and his family, especially their involvement in dirty financial dealings. President Yoram Seven has put a big roadblock, He said, if you cross this path, we will kill all of you. And we have said, listen, we are going to report on your dealings. Your private financial dealings, especially in as much as they impact on the public purse. So that battle is being fought right now. The second front line is that you could, we could not report, or we should not report, on torture. We said no. We prefer to die yesterday, opposing torture, than to live for a thousand years acquiescing to, t- to it, or keeping silent about it. Right now, as I'm happy to report, that since April, newspapers in Uganda are freely reporting acts of torture that take place in illegal detentions. But there is, something about, there is something progressive about it. Previously, it was the official army and the police that would arrest people, take them to gazetted jails, detention centers, prisons, and torture them. Today, the government can no longer use formal institutions of state to promote torture. So they're, outsour- they're outsourcing this service from private military groups. That is a great improvement. At least we know that the state is under control. Official institutions can no longer indulge in torture. Now we are going to fight to the battle of stopping illegal or non-legal military groups, paramilitary groups, and the use of illegal non gazetted detention centers to torture people. Each time these issues are reported to the world media, people think that there is a reversal of democracy. I want to say today that, in fact, this is evidence of the expansion of democracy. What we are seeing is Africans are expanding the frontiers of freedom. The state which was used to running a full-fledged dictatorship, the status quo, feel, rather, the state feels they should defend the, the status quo. It is that attempt to push the frontiers by the, by the civil society and the newspapers and the attempt by the state to defend the status quo that shows conflict. But the conflict in itself is a good thing in the sense that it shows internal dynamism. Africa has very many cadres committed to reform. Many of these cadres never receive uh, media coverage, especially in the West, because your typical African on Western television or newspapers is either the thieving president who has just stolen half his nation's budget and bought prime real estate in New York or a demented rebel cult leader who has just butchered about a thousand innocent civilians. If it's not that, it is the hungry mother with a malnourished baby on her back, outstretching her arms to an aid worker in order to receive relief food. Those are the three Africans I always see. But I am happy to report that there are so many Africans out, out there, ingenious people, innovating new ideas on how to run a business against all odds, Institutions and policies that are distorted by governments and the involvement of donors. Against all those odds, there are so many brilliant Africans innovating new ways of how to run an efficient and highly profitable business. There are committed cadres of reform in bureaucracies in Africa who think that we should move away from state-controlled economies towards supporting the private sector, putting in place a policy framework that facilitates competition that has a low tax rate so that you can attract private investors. They are committed cadres of reform in the media, as I have mentioned, but also in civil society who want to expand the spheres of freedom. All these cadres and the activities, their heroic efforts hardly receive much coverage in uh, the global media because it is obsessed with that hungry mother, that demented rebel cult leader and uh, deceiving president. Of course, there are significant challenges, structural challenges to democratization in Africa. Among those challenges is the existence of large exit options. Many educated Africans who cannot find opportunities on the continent always apply for visas and come to the West to work. In leaving their countries, you have the educated middle class leaving these countries for Better for better countries. What does that mean? It means that the most effective infrastructure for democratic politics is choosing the exit option. One of the reasons why it has been difficult to dislodge Mugabe is that 3 million people of Zimbabwe, largely its educated middle class, has left that country. In choosing the exit option to go to South Africa, Botswana, London, and elsewhere to work, these middle class Zimbabweans have given Mr. Robert Mugabe legroom to consolidate his dictatorship. But there is a second dysfunction that creates that when the men of these educated Africans are abroad, they send money every year in form of remittances to their families to build houses, to pay for health care, and also to pay for the education of their relatives. In the process, and inadvertently, these Africans have ensured that the dictators at home are able to get a huge subsidy in form of influx of foreign exchange, Because they have destroyed export markets, now they have huge foreign exchange from their citizens living abroad. And therefore, the anger from a poor uh, education system, from poor public health services, is cushioned by the fact that Africans abroad can afford to send in money that can cushion the population against these problems. I'm not suggesting that we should stop... uh, People from moving and looking for better opportunities elsewhere. I'm simply saying that it contributes to undermining the democratic impetus on the continent when it's most educated, when the most articulate citizens um, leave the continent. They rob different pillars of democracy of voice that could be very important in promoting the project of democracy. But the liberalization of the economy has, and the privatization of public enterprises, And the deregulation of prices has had an important impact on Africa. If you go to Zambia, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, Kenya, Malawi, Mozambique, Ghana, these are some of the fastest growing economies, not just in Africa, but in the world. Uganda's economic growth rate is about 9%. The growth of a large private sector is also producing not just goods, but also producing a large and viable middle class. Although many are living in the countries that are having growing economies, a large private sector is also developing a large middle class. And this large middle class provides important social infrastructure for promoting democratic politics. That is why we have 198 private FM radio stations in Uganda. Kenya has about more than 100. Tanzania has more than 100. Many of them may be controlled by politicians, but even there... Free debate is taking place on the continent. So I am, as I speak today, I'm extremely optimistic about Africa. If if the process of economic reform and economic growth continues, the social forces that are being created, a large working class, a large middle class, a large private enterprise class, all these will be the social forces that will form key pillars of restraint on how politicians exercise power. Oftentimes, The democratic deficit in Africa, Africa's dictators have been a byproduct of the limited social infrastructure for democratic politics rather than causes. The final point I want to make is the external subsidy that allows many governments in Africa to suppress or to resist democratic reform. And that external subsidy is called foreign aid. When the governments have to depend on their own citizens for resources, the governments will be driven by self-interest to talk to their citizens about policies and institutions necessary for them increasing their productivity. In doing that, the government will be doing something important. They will be conceding political liberty. If governments have to sit and negotiate with the citizens whose wealth those governments desire in form of tax revenues it means that the government will be providing voice to citizens in the policy making, policy orientation, and the policy implementation process. The current challenge to our continent is that many of our governments do not depend on us, the citizens, for tax revenues. They depend on, inter- on the generosity and kindness of international donors. Rather than forge productive arrangements with your own citizens, governments are finding it much more profitable and productive to engage the international community in negotiations for aid. So if we follow the teachings of Jeffrey Sachs, we are literally telling governments, please, it is not productive for you to discuss with your citizens about what needs to be done to the economy. You can talk to the IMF, to the World Bank, you can talk to uh, Washington, Paris and London and you will get a fat check. That is an important distortion on our continent. When citizens do not participate in contributing to the revenue that is supposed to provide public goods like roads and railways, sometimes basic health care and basic education, they look and it is the donors who substitute taxation with aid. What does it mean? It means that the citizens begin to look at government service as a gift rather than a right. The government also ceases to look at citizens or its own people as citizens who have rights to demand accountability. It looks at them as clients. In fact, the book I'm writing, I have been thinking of the title. Should I, I'm writing a book on aid in Africa. I've been thinking, should it be from citizen to client, Africa and the curse of foreign aid? The government ceases to look at its own people as citizens. It begins to look at them as clients whose support it can rent with foreign aid handouts. It is very difficult to establish a democratic system when a government's, when a government's fiscal survival depends on it having to raise revenue from outsiders. Or for that matter, as Leon said earlier, When a government's fiscal survival depends depends on it, finding a hole in the earth from which it can extract a rich mineral like oil or diamonds, sells it abroad, and then raises money to finance its political survival. That is why oil-producing countries in Africa have found it difficult to democratize. Why governments do not need to engage their own citizens in the negotiation and renegotiation of policies and incentives necessary to make their citizens productive? Governments are more interested in providing welfare that can be paid for from a a rich mineral. So finally, how do we get a consensus and promote a consensus in Africa that favors those who reform? I personally think that international solidarity is very important for Africa. We need more international involvement, not less of it. But we don't want stupid involvement. We want smart involvement. The form of involvement involvement we want is that if there is to be any form of aid at all, it may not even be financial, it may be technical. It may not be technical, it may be moral. It should go to support those who create wealth, not those who consume it. Every form of support should go to those who innovate. Those who are creative, whether in the private sector, whether in civil society, whether it is in academia, we should reward those who are succeeding and innovating and being creative. We should not subsidize those who are failing. For so many years, the Western world has been involved in Africa in subsidizing failure. I see so many young uh, Europeans and North Americans flocking into Africa, attracted to our failures, rather than being attracted to our successes. There's so many people in Africa who are doing extraordinary things. I can't outline them here. Extraordinary things. A guy who used to be a, a cab driver in Uganda, a friend of mine, he used to drive me in his... Not even, he didn't even own a cab. He was an employee driving a cab, somebody else's car. And he used to drive me. So I wrote an article saying, well, to reduce traffic congestion in, you, in Kampala, we need to have a, an efficient bus system. But we don't have Ugandans who can run an efficient bus service we would have to hire a foreign company. He came to see me in my office. He said, listen, Andrew, I have started investing. I have moved from being a cab driver. I now own 52 buses. They ply between Chigali and Nairobi. What are you writing about? Can you imagine from being a cab driver to owning a company that owns 52 buses? He has a great story to tell. I had dinner before I came here with the CEO of MTN, who told me MTN is Mobile tele- Telecommunications Network of South Africa. The CEO told me, look, when we came here 10 years ago, 1998, we wanted to borrow $40 million from international financial markets. Everyone said, no, you can't go to Africa, things won't work. Today, MTN Uganda is valued at $1 billion. It's expected after-tax profit for this year is $130 million. The per capita income of people working in MTN Uganda Is $12,000 in a country with $1,000 per capita income. So, what is the lesson we learn? That we need to support those who innovate, not subsidize those who kill them. We should abandon looking at the government and looking at the people of Africa. Ladies and gentlemen, to conclude, governments may always have interests different from those of their constituents. It is not true that when you give governments money, they will extend the services, you think, to the citizen. In fact, that subverts the democratic process. We need to shift away from our focus on governments and focus on people, from focusing on states to focusing on markets, and how do we make them work, because it is in the marketplace that the social infrastructure that will form the foundation of a democratic policy in Africa will be built. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. We'll open it to Um, Q&A. Could you just wait for a microphone and then uh, uh, just say who you are and then uh, please keep those questions short and uh, form them in a a form of question. Um, Right. Gentleman over there. Uh, good morning. My name is Johan van der and This question is from Mr. Leon. Um, growing up in South Africa and, you know, having spent most of my life, both you and I know that many South Africans were left behind specifically economically during the transition from apartheid to the now multiracial, multi-ethnic uh, democratic society. Do you believe the greater consultation and distribution of political power that would be a consequence of a possible split in the ANC would in fact bring about the desired opportunities and prosperity for the poor?
1: I think that was the expectation. Uh, the results have been very disappointing. In fact, uh, income disparity in South Africa has actually grown in the uh, intervening 14 years. What's actually happened, though, uh, largely through dirigistic uh, government directed empowerment programs, is you've had a necessary multi multi-ra- racialization of the elite, but in many ways a pauperization. Of the uh, of 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 a growing pyramid at the bottom. So you've certainly had some transfers at the top. You've arguably created something of a middle class uh, through expansions of the public service, but you've got uh, a very very many poor people at the bottom. Uh, you know we we argue a lot in South Africa about who classifies as very poor. We do have what is called a social wage by the government, which amounts to. Either subsidies or direct welfare payments. You've got more than uh, 12 million South Africans, that is a quarter of the population, in receipt of one or another grant from the government, be it an old age pension, a child support grant, or some kind of uh, grant and aid in between those two. So that's really how you have dealt with income redistribution. But it hasn't really been effective in terms of... um, creating sustainable levels out of poverty at this stage. And uh, I think a lot of pressure now exists. You would have seen there's been a split in the governing party. And the response from the Zuma half or three-quarters of the ANC has been to say, well, we've got to halve poverty by 2015. Well, these, of course, are slogans. The substance of it and how it's going to be done, I think, is the big challenge that lies ahead. And certainly how it's been done so far, Notwithstanding, government's fairly sensible macroeconomic uh, fundamental uh, uh, fundamentalism uh, has not been impressive, uh, and that really remains the challenge ahead. Over there.
3: <coughs> Thank you very much. My name is Shola O'Malley, I'm with Chevron, uh, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Nigerian, and I, I want to uh, – commend my brother here, Mr. Mwenda, for a very beautiful expose of the progress that we have made uh, in Africa. However, when I add the rent-seeking, the attitude of the rent-seeking governments and the disconnect of those governments from their people, I add that to the attitude of the opposition and the party in power, where the opposition is just maybe another party in power because he's seeking to get into power. When I add both of those together, I'm, I'm a little confused as to where we're going to, how we're going to make progress, how the people are going to really have a voice that determines the government, that, the kind of government that we deserve. I wonder if you can comment about that a little bit. Me or Andrew? You, sir.
1: Well, I think, uh, I think you've really summarized and headlined what, what the big challenge is. Now, uh, you know, I, I don't agree with everything Andrew said, for example, about aid. I, I agree, generally speaking, for example, that either foreign uh, aid and indeed uh, revenue tends to inhibit the democratization. But you've got to ask yourself, well, you know, how, what, what can be done? And I believe that conditionality and selectivity is much better than no conditionality and no selectivity, just, just to give you one, for instance. The second thing is, you know, in South Africa, which about which I'm most familiar for obvious reasons, we had um, a lot of democratic space opening up after 1994 and a strange sort of silence descended on the country where people weren't prepared to vigorously contest. But... That is largely gone now. There is now a vigorous contestation and a vigorous uh, occupation of what you might call democratic space, which I think is a welcome development. And, um, you know, how do you make governments more accountable to people, really, is, is, the, is the subtext of your question. And I, I, I think that is going to be an ongoing challenge. There is no shortcut. There's no silver bullet. There's no monocausal uh, a- accounting for it. I think you've got to pursue the menu, the full menu, not just sort of a few morsels, titbits. If, if I could just say, I think the the failure or the superficiality, which really is what you're saying, of democratic reform in Africa generally, and obviously you can't general, but let, we let generalise for the purpose of the question, has really been to actually pick one or two morsels. Say, right, we're going to have free and fair elections. That's going to be the yardstick. And in the nature of box ticking, whether it's Freedom House, who I think does a good job, or the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is an issue people in Washington can comment about with more authority than I can, you do reduce it to quantifiable boxes that you tick off or, or, or don't tick off, whereas actually, as we know, you know you've know, you got to look at some issues in depth. And, and I think that's that, to me, is the key, to actually not be too superficial, to actually – say, well, okay, we've now had a democratic transition, but that's the first step. That is the necessary, it's the insufficient condition. What are the sufficiencies of real democracy and how do we establish them? And, and, and that, of course, is, requires, if I might. I was told yesterday in a discussion here at Cato that uh, Jefferson said, um, but I thought it was William Pitt, it was probably both of them. They probably plagiarized in the old days as much as politicians do today that, you know, uh, vigilance is the price uh, that you have to pay for, it, uh, for for liberty, eternal vigilance. And that's what we need.
0: In the
3: back. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Kobina Edu. And um, one common theme I've heard is how um, natural resources have generally um, served to aggravate the Rent-seeking and uh, sort of client state, and um, I'd like you, gentlemen, I'd like to hear your opinion on how you put Botswana in historical context about what are the forces that has led it to manage its resources so so well to lead to national uh, development.
1: Well, I, I think Botswana is an excellent example of an enduring democracy. It's also, you know, famously the example was given on economic development that. In 1966, when it got its independence from Britain, as a, from previously a protectorate, it had 12 kilometers of tarred road. You know, now it's got sort of highways uh, that span the country, as I saw when I was just recently in France's town myself. So I think it, it, it is – but I, I, have to, I have to say that the Botswana model uh, actually points to a kind of exceptionalism, which is not easy to replicate. Number one, it's a very small country, fewer than 2 million people in population. Number two, it's ethnically homogeneous, by and large. I think 70% of Bots- Botswana people are of the Botswana group. Uh, the replication of political leadership uh, and tribal authority is very, very close in, in the form of Siretsi Kama and today Ian Kama. So, you know, you've, you've got certain uh, certain coincidences there that that d- don't apply in many other and more challenging African d- democracies or failed states. On the other hand, it has endured. Now, but even Botswana, which is is, is the best example, I think, in in Africa, uh, has its challenges. I mean, if you go down the road, it's worth a visit, as I can tell. as a recent arrived uh, tourist slash scholar here, whatever I am. Um, (laughs) I won't say that too loudly in front of Ian. But uh, the, I, I went to a place called the Museum, which is a marvelous news museum for those of you wish to part with twenty dollars it 's certainly worth going to look at um, and you know there 's a map of media freedom in the world, and Botswana, which has so many impressive indices, is actually correctly classified in media terms as not being a free country because there are media restrictions in Botswana which don 't apply uh, in for example South Africa and. You know, don't apply in, in places like Kenya, which is not a free democracy, but has a free media. So, what I'm saying is, I, I think we can learn lessons, and I think they are worth uh, reflecting on. But you know, it's uh, to use a phrase of Tarver and Becky. Mbeki Becky was always, I don't know why I keep quoting him. I suppose because I led the opposition to him for all these years, sort of embedded in my brain is dear vanquished Tarver and Becky. But uh, Tabo and Becky once said. That the problem with looking at Africa is a bit like going to the United States and, you know, talking about Dead Man's Creek, Mississippi, and then drawing certain parallels with um, New York City. There's no parallel at all between those two places. They happen to be in the same country. Now, equally, you can say that you can draw certain lessons, parallels between African countries. Indeed, we've had to do that today for the purpose of this lecture. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened or you would have had to come here, you know, for something like uh, 48 different lectures, which I'm sure none of you would have done. But there are there are some very, very distinctive patterns which are not that easy to replicate.
0: One, one of the uh, – let me just make a quick comment about Botswana. One of the things that uh, – there is an argument, certainly, that uh, – Countries that have become free first, and then became resource-rich later, have succeeded in maintaining both freedom and uh, and uh, natural riches and use them wisely. Certainly, uh, Britain, uh, a, a country which is rich in oil, and Norway, where uh, free societies long time before. Uh, mineral resources were b- before oil was discovered. Same with Botswana. It g- gained independence and established, and, and established um, a representative type of government before diamonds came on the scene. I happen to think that Botswana's adoption of relative... Uh, Or rather, Botswana's rejection of Marxism had to do also with with its neighborhood being squeezed between South Africa, Southwest Africa, and Rhodesia back in the 60s. I don't think that Ian Kama had much of an option – sorry, uh, Saretsa Kama didn't have much of an option to go any other route. But – that, that, that would be my, my comment.
1: Can I just add one thing? And I'm sorry, I don't want to pr- pr- prolong the question, but I think it's very important. We actually have a real test of, 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 of the proposition that Marion just put in the form of Ghana. I mean, significant oil resources have recently been discovered in Ghana. Now, Ghana is one of the more successful post-liberation democratic transitions uh, in Africa. It is a, 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 a rated a democracy. Uh, today, a free democracy Now they've discovered oil So it's not Nigeria where the oil came first And democratization which failed came later it's, Or Angola It is a Botswana Now will it persist with uh, its democratization? It, it, it hopefully will Will the discovery of oil um, to an extent knock it off course? One hopes not, but, but let's see so we, we, have it, we, have a, we have a new situation, which I think will be very interesting to, to watch. Okay. <laughs> ah, well, there you are. So I okay. hope I'm correct. We,
0: we'll, have a, we'll take one or two questions over here and uh, in front. So if you could also come here. Let's take, let's take a few because we have very limited time.
3: Thank you. I'm Elizabeth Shackelford with Booz Allen. I had a question which um, actually both of you gentlemen might want to comment on. In Uganda, I understand that oil reserves are just starting to be explored and exploited, and I wonder how you think that might affect uh, Uganda's current democratic state and the development of their private sector.
4: And one more question over here. Uh, Yes. um, My name is Craig Olson. I'm a retired foreign service officer. I I wanted to ask a question uh, of Actually, about the relationship between that you, uh, Mr. Tupi, is that the way you passed your name? The, uh, the uh, you you the distinction, or you started out with the distinction between or uh, between economic freedom and political freedom. Uh, I think it was a year before last. There was something called the Beijing Summit, in which a number of uh, a large number of uh, African heads of state went. Uh, to he,
0: they can't hear in the back. Oh, I, is it on? It, on? Yeah. Or it is on? But I'll
4: repeat the question and okay. answer. Hold it up closer, okay. The Beijing summit, in which a number, of, um, a number of heads of state went to Beijing, and it didn't, a number of African heads of state went to Beijing, it did not escape their attention, I think, that China is among the fastest growing economic countries in the world, and yet it has almost no uh, political freedom. Okay, I understand. So the question is <clears throat> um, to what extent do you think that African countries believe that there can be development without democracy, or if we don't want to go that far, at least an African form of democracy that is not a Western form of democracy. I okay.
0: Andrew, do you want to go ahead? Awesome.
2: Well, about Uganda, uh, <clears throat> I am deeply suspicious. See, I'm not a determinist, but I think that the outcome of anything is determined by the struggles along the way. It cannot be... Uh, preordained or predetermined, but I'm deeply suspicious that given the configuration of power within Uganda, oil can only accentuate neo patrimonial practices within the government and therefore we are likely to have a highly corrupt uh, democratic system. The the, different freedoms in Uganda will remain, but the outplay within the government will be characterized by high levels of corruption and brigandage.
1: Just let me answer, if I can, the question raised by Mr. Olson. uh, Well, first of all, there's a huge wild card in African development economically and democratically is the presence and growing presence of China. And the summit you mentioned drew every single African leader went to Beijing bar the five or six African countries who maintain relations with Taipei. So, I mean, it it was a big deal. Now, the question – you know, there's, there's a very interesting paper written by a man called Peter Lewis who actually said that the authoritarian kind of model uh, of, the, of development, you know, through strongman leadership is, is quite tempting. But he couldn't find one example in Africa where it's actually achieved even what Singapore achieved. So while, while the temptation might be there, the results are very scant. And I, I think that is correct. I'm not saying it, it won't remain – I think, though, one of the counterweights to it is the latest Afrobarometer survey, which polls public opinion in Africa, actually shows an enduring commitment to sticking with democracy, despite huge challenges of underdevelopment, which I was mildly encouraged by when I saw those figures. So, um, you know, the, uh, I, I, I don't discount it, but I think it's, uh, it's uh, democracy in, in various forms is here to stay. Now, it's not going to be a... A Western democracy is experienced here. Uh, and that probably, I think, goes to the issue of levels of economic development. I, I do think that uh, you, know, you have a better chance of democratizing fully when, for example, you know, you've got a, a better off population. That generally seems to be the case. There are quite a few exceptions to that around the world. India is an example. But uh, it's, it, it points in that direction. And certainly, um, although there are some very poor countries that have democratized in Africa, the challenges of maintaining democratization are much the greater. So I think you're going to get democracy, but it's not going to be adjectivally what you would call Western or even liberal. Well, I'll,
0: I'll just make a final comment. I started with Milton Friedman, uh, one of my heroes, so I'll end with Milton Friedman. Friedman would like to say that um, you can have – you can, have pol- uh, you can have economic freedom without political freedom, but you cannot have political freedom without economic freedom. The closest any country has come to disproving the Friedman rule, I think, was, was India, but as one of my brilliant colleagues here, Swami Iyer, tells me, it, it's not really disapproval um, or, or doesn't really contradict the Friedman rule because um, India never really had... Uh, the kind of statist economic policies that were present in, uh, say, Central uh, Eastern Europe and uh, under communism. And um, if you want to look at uh, the United States' foreign policy, you are a foreign policy, uh, you you are a former State Department official. Um, During the Reagan administration, uh, the Gene Kirkpatrick attitude was that you could work with... uh, uh, dictatorships that allowed economic freedom to gradually turn into politically free societies as well. That has certainly been the case in, uh, say, South Korea and Taiwan and uh, Chile and so on. So economic freedom tends to uh, increase wealth. It tends to create a middle class. It tends to um, make people demand protection – for their property and for their status by uh, desiring more political rights. Um, That's at least what Friedman had to say about it. Thank you all for coming, and please join us for lunch upstairs. Thank you.